Good morning. I'm John Lovell, your host, and you'll find us here at Visionaries every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, but we're global, so it could be any time in your part of the world, on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy, dot com. And on Visionaries, we talk with visionaries, people in the arts, technology, science, culture, spirituality, about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energy of the cosmos. Well, no guest today. I'm going to free associate. I'm an old Gene Shepard fan. If you don't know who that is, uh, (laughs) my my school in the uh, late 50s, uh, my high school was on split session because they didn't... uh, build enough space and enough time. And I was on a morning session, but I had to stay up Sunday nights listening to Gene Shepard till like one in the morning. I had to get up at six or something like that. So, uh, but uh, he's a pioneer of freeform radio. If you don't know who that is, lots of his shows are available online. Uh, so go find them. They're just incredible. But he inspired a lot of uh, what you hear on this station, on BAI, etc. Um, what we today call Freeform Radio. Some of our back guests that you'll find on visionaries.podbean.com, Virginia Postrial. Uh, what an interesting figure. Uh, one of my favorite books is by her, uh, The Future and Its Enemies. And we're in this really interesting period right now. Um, we're continually tempted to design the future. You should control our future. You want to avoid bad stuff like CRISPR. Who knows what I teach? So raise your hand. Who knows what CRISPR is? It's a very efficient, new, very easy form of gene editing. So any bright high school student can uh, do weird things with bacteria in the kitchen. Uh, Should we allow that? So... Should we control the future or be open to its open-endedness? I'm for being open to its open-endedness, as is Virginia Postrel. Before that, uh, you might recall we had Christine Peterson, uh, and she is a a co-founder and past president of the Foresight Institute, which promotes nanotechnology as pioneered by K. Eric Drexler, the idea that Tiny little, very tiny little robot arms will be picking up individual molecules or atoms and assembling them to make the things of the future. And we're getting there. Uh, And so uh, she brings us up to date on what's going on there. Uh, Before that, we had Tina Selig, and she teaches a course on creativity and innovation at Stanford. So... Uh, really cool stuff. So anyway, catch those back shows and a few dozen others with uh, interesting figures. Uh, Jeremy Lent on. Oh, you know, she he brings back something from the 60s, kind of uh, a certain kind of new age thinking. Um, and 
lots of others. So those are some of our back shows. And I, uh, so I'm going through my morning internet stuff. And interestingly, recently I found, you know, I subs- I'm into tech stuff. And I'm interested in, you know, what, uh, what's going on in artificial intelligence, new materials, nanotechnology, computers, all that stuff. And <clears throat> so I f- subscribe to um, Ray Kurzweil's website. So it's Kurzweil, K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-L-A-I for artificial intelligence, dot, I think it's dot net. And uh, but you'll find it. And if you subscribe, you can look at the news feeds or if you subscribe, you get a newsletter every day. Used to have five or six items, really interesting stuff. Now it's only one. (laughs) I think he's busy. Uh, He's he's chief engineer at Google. So uh, and he's an advocate of artificial intelligence. Uh, He's the author of Singularity is near. Singularity being when um, the uh, when we combine our intelligence with artificial intelligence, and then you know, is that doable? How do you do that? Well, he wrote a book, How to Create a Mind, <laughs> and he's getting there. I mean, this is a lot of this stuff was uh, uh, empty speculation, particularly in the late '60s, early '70s, but they're really doing stuff now. And uh, maybe talk a little bit more about that today. And uh, all of a sudden, he has the resources of Google. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands, you know, server farms with hundreds of thousands of servers and the brightest engineers in the world and all that stuff. So uh, anyway, he's putting less into his newsletter, but there are others. Uh, I get Peter Diamandis's. uh Abundance, Abundance Insider, I think it is. That shows up in my email every morning. And then what's most interesting, I think, these days is Twitter. And, uh, you know, Twitter is who you follow. So uh, I don't have a lot of followers, but I'm following about, I would say, maybe 80-some people and institutions. And you pick the stuff you're interested in whether it's politics or, you know, ecology or techie stuff or uh, uh, thinkers in a certain kind of approach that's interesting to you, and you follow them, and um, you'll get their comments. But more than that, uh, they very often feed news in their field that may not be in the newsletters you're getting. I'm also into the humanities, so <clears throat> I teach architectural history and culture, so I'm into everything. But um, in the humanities, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'll talk about it later, but um, uh, what is it? A-A-L, Arts and Letters Daily. Uh, so aldaily.com. And <clears throat> they ha- every day they post... Um, and a link to one article, one book, and one essay. So if you, uh, you know, tap in once a week, there'll be seven new ones to check out. You know, in, in the old days, 
uh, before the internet, uh, I would go on in the you know like say Friday evenings. My idea of uh, you know, <laughs> of uh, what to do on a Friday evening. Uh, t- taught late on Friday, and I'd go to Barnes and Noble. I, you know, my favorite one was the one that's no longer there, the big one on Sixth Avenue between about uh, what was it, twenty first and twenty second? No, twentieth uh, and twenty first. It's now a Trader Joe's. Eh. Anyway, <clears throat> I would go through the magazine section and pick up a dozen magazines and go sit in a corner. They had given up the easy chairs. <laughs> they had easy chairs till they got you hooked. Then they got rid of them. But anyway, I'd go sit in a corner and maybe read one article from each magazine. And then you don't have to buy them. And who wants to buy a dozen magazines? That'll add up. But... Uh, now you do that online, and you go to services that do that for you. So Arts and Letters Daily is one of those services, and it's in the humanities. Uh, it's not techie stuff. It's stuff in ideas, Atlantic Monthly stuff type stuff, Harper's type stuff. But it looks at you know a few dozen publications, so it's. Uh, It'll keep you up to date rather broadly. Let me just take a look here. I printed out the first page. And as of today, um, War is Horrible. It's alarmingly attractive. Uh, An article about that. A new book, Thinking About Thinking. And then the essay. Um, If the rise of humanism was a sunrise, then is this uh, an eclipse? And so I was interested in that when I clicked on it. Turned out to be New York Review of Books. Printed it out. Read it. I was trying to decide if I should have the writer on the show. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop had astonishing control and poetic technique. The fate of artists and of art is itself in the hands of too few persons. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a political writer. Um, the past should be studied only to expose its failings. Poor George Orwell, uh, etc. So uh, you go through this and, oh, Giorgio Vasari. Uh, second-rate artist, but a first-rate gossip. Yeah, you know, Giorgio Vasari, Lives of the Artists, Arthur Schlesinger, um, etc. Anyway, so go through that. You'll find stuff that you want to follow up on you just click and there's the article so maybe that's why there's a lot less Barnes and Nobles than there used to be so I'm going through my <laughs> YouTubes this morning and um, it's really interesting well before I do that let's look at audible uh, I'm I've got dozens of books on my cell phone and uh, so I went back to my Audible account, and there's all, all the books I've bought. I haven't figured out how to get them pirated, so I actually pay for them. Oh, uh, all, the, uh, all the books I've bought since 2010, over 10 years, 2006, 12 years. They're all there, although they froze my account. <laughs> I said it's a glitch. I want, you know, I'm out of credits. I want to buy a dozen more books for a hundred some dollars, and I can't do it. 
So they say, we're looking into it, which is scary because, you know, I can not buy a book for a day or two. But what happens if they shut down my account and I lose thousands of dollars worth of books? I uh, Maybe there's a reason why I'm paying $500 a month for a mini storage with filled with shelves with books. And that's already after having getting, gotten rid of literally thousands of them to uh, to um, the Strand used bookstore. But uh, hopefully they won't lose my books. Hopefully they get my account reinstated here. But some of my recent uh, books I've, I've just finished, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Well, you know, it's interesting, and we'll get to this when we get to John Brockman's uh, edge, but we're—let me digress. Uh, Before we go on about these books, what we're going to sort of talk about today is two cultures. So in 1959, uh, scientists and historian C.P. Snow gave a lecture, The Two Cultures and the Scientific Revolution— and it then came out as a book called The Two Cultures and the Scientific Revolution. And everybody was talking about it. Remember, all my parents' intellectual friends were talking about this book. And what Snow says is that if you go back, I don't know, 100 years or more, uh, the people who were leading figures in People would be leaders in the sciences and the humanities. Think of Benjamin Franklin, humanist, uh, uh, political statesman, and a major scientist of his day. There are concepts in electricity we use to this day that were developed by Benjamin Franklin. So, And then, you know, he uh, made a weird musical instrument, which he gave to Mozart. So here we are in the arts, music, science, um, the humanities, political, uh, the political birth of a new nation. And these figures, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson was a scientist as well as humanist political figure, et cetera, et cetera. And so what C.P. Snow is observing is that they've split into two cultures. So now we have scientists and techies. <laughs> and <clears throat> You know, I, I go, I'm in both worlds, uh, knee deep, and I go to important techie conferences, and I'll be the only person there from the humanities. Uh, I'm an architect. I teach history of architecture. And, um, you know, everybody else will be a techie. And then I'll go to a humanities conference, and they're, you know, all uptight about technology. And there's nobody there from technology except me, somewhat. So C.P. Snow writes about these two worlds, and they're not, no longer being in touch with each other. And he sort of picks on the humanities more. You know, he quotes, and we see it to this day, people saying, uh, I'm afraid of mathematics. Well, why is that acceptable? You know, if you said, I can't read, would you be taken seriously in intellectual circles? So if you say, I'm totally ignorant of math, I, I freak out, you know, <laughs> they, 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 uh, um, Stephen Hawking, when he did his book, A Brief History of Time, I'm very flattered we had the same agent. 
Um, but anyway, uh, literary agent. But uh, when Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, he was working with his the editor and his publisher, and they said, for every formula in your book, you will lose half your audience. So A Brief History of Time, one of the leading, uh, the leading popular science book of recent times, spent more time on the uh, London Times bestseller list than any other book in the history of the list, has only one formula in it, E equals MC squared. And, you know, so he lost half his audience, but it was still a mega bestseller. So <laughs> where is that at? Why is that acceptable? Why should people be um, uh, excused for being enumerate, right? Enumerate is the uh, numeracy is the parallel of literacy. And, you know, uh, maybe we still can't do calculus, but we should have taken it. And we should have, people argue today we should uh, require statistics instead of calculus, which probably makes sense. But certainly, you know, algebra, we should know um, what these concepts are. I um, We have some pretty heavy-duty uh, mathematicians at my school. Actually, they ended up there in the late 60s when there was a collapse in the uh, city college system in New York. They were going to teach science or engineering, uh, mathematics for scientists or engineers, and they ended up at an art school. And they've, they've had great careers, but uh, when I have a question, like I'll go to the mathematician and say, can you explain Hilbert space to me? Hilbert space is one of the ways you can do uh, quantum theory. And so she says, okay, so you understand uh, um, uh, Euclidean geometric space. You know, think of Cartesian coordinates. You have your X, Y, Z coordinates. Except now, instead of having three coordinates for three-dimensional space, you have infinite coordinates. <laughs> and I can't picture it. <laughs> of course you can't. But, uh, you know, what, what we want from our mathematicians, that we don't get as much as we, we should, which is, can you, can you give me a metaphor that will help me handle that? And... Um, Mathematicians are notoriously not good at that, not good at giving us these metaphors. So we struggle. But anyway, we do the best we can. And uh, so the C.P. Snow, the two cultures, leads me to John Brockman's Edge. I think it's edge.org. Let's see if I can find that. But anyway, highly recommended. Definitely find, uh, find the website. And make sure that you edge.org. There we go, edge.org. So uh, Brockman uh, was a, sort of a concept artist, writer, and then he became a literary agent. And I'm, uh, and he did something very interesting. So I was briefly, uh, he was briefly my agent, and he would type up and Xerox a list of all of his clients, this is in the, um, in the late 70s, he would type up 
a list of all his clients and a one-paragraph description of each one's current project. So briefly, I was on that list. So I was uh, I was flattered to be there. I'm not anymore. But it would be about maybe 10 pages, and he would mail it to a list. And <clears throat> it was a, a, a kind of pre-internet way of networking information. So everybody who was on that uh, on that list would get it, and maybe a few other people. And so people would know what other people were up to. And then he started having meetings, salons. And at each meeting, someone would do a presentation. And they actually began with um, an interesting figure, James Lee Byers. James Lee Byers was um, tragically died young, uh, 1932 to 1997, died of cancer. But he was a concept artist. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, flattered to uh, boast that I gave him probably his most important show. And so in the 19, when? Late 60s. In the late 1960s, uh, I was curator of the exhibits at the Architectural League of New York. And we were doing environmental art and concept art. And so we did things with the New York poets, you know, John Giorno and Ann Waldman's group. Uh, and we did things with concept artists, environmental artists. And <clears throat> James Lee Byers did a series of communal clothing. So opening night, he had a, he would use round numbers like a mile long. I don't know that it was a mile long, but he had a mile long head uh, garment. And so it was about 10 feet wide and long. And every 10 feet, there was a head hole cut in it. So everybody came to the opening, uh, got in the garment, making a giant snake, which exited the gallery and circled the block. And then when we had totally circled the block, his assistants came with scissors and cut every five people. And uh, so you went back with four new friends <laughs> for drinking and dancing. So um, and then throughout the uh, three weeks of the exhibit, there would be new things like he had uh, the pink silk airplane. So he had pink silk uh, shape of a you know, a cross for an airplane, the body and the wings, with head holes in it. And he would sit in it, and there'd be another head hole. You could go and you could sit in it and talk philosophy. He had two and a banana. He had a long uh, yellow cloth tube. He would get in, he was in one end with the drawstring closed at his neck, and you would get in the other end and close the drawstring and talk philosophy. All this taking place in a gallery on East 65th Street. The Architectural League is no longer there. But it was in about a, oh, I'd say, yeah, 20 by 20 foot room with a 10 foot ceiling and painted pure white and a thousand watt bare filament light bulb hanging in the center of the room, the only source of light. And... So there would be something different every few days. One of them we, we did was uh, a mile-long hat. So um, 
he stood in front of the Metropolitan Museum. We unrolled this uh, piece of cloth the length of Fifth Avenue to 59th Street and Grand Army Plaza, where someone stood at the other end. But you couldn't see each other because it's a slight rise <laughs> in the topography in between. And I, this, all, all of this was like endless battles for me. Like that one, I had to get a parade permit <laughs> from the city of New York for us to— uh, people could still walk on the sidewalk, but we had to have, you know, a permit to uh, unfold this uh, unfold this thing. Circling the block, that was a wild one because we had to get insurance that any store on—there's uh, stores on Madison Avenue— that we were in front of could sue us for lost business <laughs> for the 10 minutes that we were blocking their entrance uh, by having this uh, garment thing circling the block. Anyway, um, that's James Lee Byers. So uh, I, I've known about this for decades, but I didn't realize that Byers was central to organizing this thing. So... Um, anyway, Edge was formed by, let's see, go to its website. Edge was launched in 1996 as the online version of the Reality Club, that was the salon that Brockman had, and as a living document on the web to display the activities of the third culture, which is what I'm getting to, the third culture. So <clears throat> talked about the two cultures, uh, science and the humanities by C.P. Snow. And in response to that, Brockman started to contend that scientists today, physicists, neurophysiologists, um, mathematicians, are really encroaching into, that's not a fair word, but are leaning into the humanities, into philosophy. And that what they're, when they talk about uh, for example, uh, well, let me just describe what he does. What he does is he cure. It's a curated site where he has identified the most interesting people in the world, bar none. Well, I think so. I agree with his choices. And so, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of people I have no idea how many, but uh, you go to his website and you can search, and there'll be someone like David Deutsch. So. David Deutsch is uh, the author of The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity. And he is one of the founders of quantum computing. He did the, he laid down the principles that made quantum computing possible. And he says something interesting. He says, uh, I'm one of the founders of quantum computing, but there's so much going on today, even I can't follow everything that's going on which is a characteristic of our world today. So anyway, interesting figure because uh, the way a quantum computer works is, well, a conventional computer has, imagine a cursor, and let's say you had a phone book with a million names, and uh, you wanted to, uh, and they're in random order, and you wanted to find somebody's name uh, so you can find their phone number. And so you said, uh, okay, Lobel, comma, John. 
So, and you didn't have a search capability. Well, you did have a search capability. And so you say, well, Beldama, comma, John. And the cursor would go to the first name, says, is that begin with an L? Hmm, no. Second name, does that begin with an L? Hmm, no. Third name, does that begin with an L? Hmm, no. Whoops, fourth one, that begins with an L. Is the second letter an O? No, okay. Uh, next one. Uh, and let's say it could do you know, one a second. It would take a million seconds or uh, on average a half a million because on average uh, your name, my name would be in the middle of this million name list. On average, it would take a million, se- half a million seconds for the computer to find your name. But a quantum computer's cursor, so to speak, could be in all positions at the same time. So it could find your name in the first second. Well, how does it do that? <laughs> well, that's what uh, that's what uh, uh, Shor's algorithm and uh, uh, the work that David Deutsch did figured out. So quantum computers now exist, although they're still very rudimentary. I'll get to that in a minute. There's something great on uh, online this morning. So anyway, David Deutsch is a proponent of what's called the many worlds theory of quantum uh, quantum theory. So, uh, as Freeman, uh, as uh, the way that quantum theory is explained is through the, the what's considered the best explanation is a double slit experiment in which. You've got two slits in aluminum foil, and a, and a photon of light can go through either one or the other. Well, if you're not looking at it while it's going through, it goes through both. What does that mean? How does it do that? And there are various theories about that. One of the theories is well, the, the, what's called the, um, the uh, Copenhagen uh, Convention uh, by Heisenberg is that it's meaningless to talk about what it does until you look at it. And when you look at it, it's gone, it has, in fact, gone through one or the other. And before you look at it, it's meaningless to talk about it. So that's called the collapse of superposition. But another theory uh, by Everett is called the many worlds theory or parallel universes theory, which is at the point where the particle has to go through one slit or the other, the, it goes through both. And in our universe, it goes through one, but then it splits off another parallel universe in which it went through the other. And that means there's a lot of parallel universes. Well, David Deutsch is a proponent of the parallel universes theory. And his answer to um, how does a quantum computer gain its prodigious power? In other words, um, a, a very capable quantum computer, which we have not uh, we have not made yet, but we might make in the next couple of decades, uh, would be more powerful than a conventional computer the size of the universe. Where does it get this power? And David Deutsch likes to say it gets it by harnessing its siblings in the parallel universes. So uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> that gets to be philosophical. You know, you get to... Uh, I think uh, some of these philosophical questions can get stupid, but let's uh, um, let's get stupid. Um, suppose there was 
you were miserable in many parallel universes, but ecstatically happy in some of them. If you keep committing suicide whenever you're miserable, only the ecstatic ones will be left. Now, aside from that's worse even than Schrodinger's cat, but uh, what is the philosophical implication of that? Well, uh, philosophers are just beginning to think about it, but people like David Deutsch have been thinking about it for a long time. So that's Brockman's point, that these kinds of issues have been grappled with, no, are being grappled with no longer by, um, by philosophers, by people in the humanities, by people in literature, but rather by these scientists who are asking these kinds of questions. And those are the people that he, uh, that he features on his website. Now, hang on and pardon me for just a moment while I go through these piles of paper here. Here we go. Hang on. There we go. So one of the things that Brockman's famous for, having a stat gotten this, um, you know, this, uh, what do we call it? Curated this group of uh, really exciting people. Oh, so the thing is, you want to know about David Deutsch or any of the maybe 100 or so other people he's got, you go to his website and there'll be a bio, there'll be essays by them, and there'll be videos by them. So it's a tremendous resource. Well, one of the things he does every year is he asks all these people a question. And uh, in the past uh, few years, uh, all the answers have been compiled into a book. Before that, they just went on the website. But now there's a book every year. So, for example, this year, 2017, the question is, what scientific term or concept ought to be more widely known? Uh, year before. What do you consider the most interesting recent scientific news? What makes it important? 2015. What do you think about machines that think? 2014. What scientific idea is ready for retirement? Um, and then you get some of the brightest scientists, mathematicians, philosophers in the world to each produce a one-page um, essay about it and then compile them all. What is your favorite deep, elegant, or beautiful explanation? Uh, I'm going to jump ahead. One of the ones that got it. Oh, and the New York Times will publish this every year. This is, this is Brockman's question this year. And here are a couple interesting answers. So one of the, um, one of the, one of the ones a couple of years back, uh, here we go, a 2005. What do you believe is true even though you can't prove it? Um, so, jumping back, 2011, what scientific concept would improve everybody's cognitive toolkit? To 2010, how is the Internet changing the way you think? Now, interestingly, the demand was, you know, not what do you think the Internet is doing to all of us, but how has it changed you? Um, 2008. 
2009. What will change everything? (laughs) This is a great phrase, right? This will change everything. 2008. What have you changed your mind about? 2007. What are you optimistic about? 2006. I'll stop here. Um, What is your dangerous idea? Remember one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the Peter Thiel, who uh, is a prominent Silicon Valley uh, techie entrepreneur, venture capitalist. He's the excuse me, <coughs> one of the co-founders of PayPal and the first uh, outside investor in Facebook and. Um, Recently had a gay marriage, uh, got married to uh, his long-term companion. But his uh, and he wrote a great book, From Zero to One. How do you get an idea started? And it's about business, but it applies to anything. These, these, the better of these books are applicable very broadly. But anyway, his favorite interview question is, What do you believe that almost nobody else believes? So, A, you know, do you think originally or just parrot all the um, BS that's out there? And B, do you dare say it? Nobody else believes it. It's probably not popular. So, anyway, uh, those are cool kinds of questions. So, anyway, that's Brockman's Edge. Got an email from, from Edge this morning, so that led me to think, uh, oh, maybe I should tell you guys about it. And you definitely, definitely check it out. See if there's somebody you're interested in, if they're there. So, and, oh, and Brockman's got a bunch of books. Most of his books compile what has been, um, what has been, um, uh, found on the site. And then his son has a cool book on this as well. Uh, I'm forgetting his name right now. But it, maybe it'll come up on my Audible list here. So anyway, I went to my Audible account. I can still get my books even though they've shut down my ability to order new ones. Uh, hopefully they'll get that fixed. But uh, some of the recent books that I've been uh, that I've been listening to uh, just finished, and I'm going to listen to it again. Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing Our Digital Future. Now, there's a lot of books about our digital world today that I don't think much of. You know, they list all the same, uh, the same old, same old. And this one is really interesting. Uh, it does a good job. There's something that's kind of hot right now. You might have heard of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a digital currency. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting concept out there. What is money? Uh, What the hell is that? And it's really complicated stuff. It's not easy to understand. And banks manufacture it. Every time a bank makes a loan to you, it has created money. How do they do that? What, What gives them the right to do that? Why can't I create money? What, what, what's going on here? Well, money has been uh, 
co-opted by, controlled by countries. Well, why why should a country have money? Why you know it's like saying you can only get your books from the government. We're about to say, uh, you know, you can only get your health care through the government. Uh, what happens when you can only get your news through the government? You can only get your health care through the government. Um, is that what we want? Uh, why is it that we can only get our money through the government? So Bitcoin was anonymously created and um, sort of is controlled by the crowd. Nobody controls it. But it generates currency. And the currency is created by very difficult computer processes. And you can speculate in it. It hasn't caught on. It might. But, you know, right now you can't pay for your Amazon purchases through Bitcoin. But there's some things you can you can use Bitcoin for to pay. And it was used by uh, the dark web, websites that would sell drugs and stuff like that. You pay with Bitcoin because Bitcoin, among other things, is anonymous, unlike your credit card. So anyway, uh, and it's speculative. Bitcoins have taken off, and uh, one Bitcoin was a few dollars a few months ago, and now there's $6,000 for one Bitcoin. So uh, <laughs> you should have bought, I should have bought some Bitcoins. <laughs> you know, $1,000 worth of Bitcoins would be a few million dollars today. But, oh well. Anyway, this book, these are the new platforms. It's a new platform for money, a new platform for purchasing. And then the interesting thing is the thing, the ledger for Bitcoin, who keeps track of my Bitcoins? And the answer is, oh, <laughs> and the other wild story is your Bitcoins are in an account which only you can get through a password. And there's a, a famous story about a guy who had um, – threw out a hard disk that had his Bitcoin account on it because Bitcoins were going, you know, his Bitcoins were worth, you know, like $12. <laughs> now they're worth $3 million, but he threw out the hard disk that had his, that had his uh, uh, password on it. And so he identified the dump where the trash went, but he didn't bother any, the area in the dump where it would be and what layer it would be in, but he didn't bother to dig for it. It was worth like $3 million or something like that. But um, don't lose your password if you have Bitcoins. But the records are kept in something called uh, uh, BitChain. Now, BitChain is unforgeable. Um, it can't be cracked and it can't be, it can't be uh, altered. And the reason is it resides on all the computers of all the people who use this thing. And as a result, a hacker would have to get into millions of computers and make the same change to forge something. So BitChain is suddenly people are saying, wow, there are all kinds of things we could use that for. It could totally change everything. How you track deliveries where a ship is that's got, you know, all the stuff for a Walmart coming from China. 
um, how you how you track uh, deeds of ownership. I encountered something interesting. We don't realize some of the things that our culture has built up. For example, if you buy a house or an apartment, um, there's a deed and there's a process to verify it, and you get title insurance. You know that you own this house, and if anything is wrong and you don't own this house, um, your title insurance covers you and will make make you whole. So, uh, but when the Soviet Union collapsed and it became Russia, the government said, "Okay, you live in an apartment, you own it, you can sell it. We're out of that business. We can't even, you know, <laughs> we're having a hard enough time keeping our ships from rusting and sinking." So, all of a sudden, it got really weird. And uh, people at my school actually work on building community services and were consulting in Russia for how to set up uh, uh, communes and co-ops for people to own and manage their apartment complexes. Imagine a big apartment complex like Peter Cooper Stuyvesant Town, which is across the street from me. I'm in another complex. Um, but it's about 20,000 people and thousands of apartments. And all of a sudden, suppose it becomes unclear who owns this thing, who owns the apartment, who owns the complex, who's responsible for the heat, who buys the oil. And they had to put that together real quick in Russia. So, um, it, but the story is told, and it's really scary. You want to buy an apartment, there are no mortgages. You borrow from all your friends, save your money, borrow from all your friends, and you go there with a suitcase with $100,000 in it, and you hope to, and you give him the suitcase, and he gives you the deed, and you hope he hasn't sold it to three other people that morning. And, and there's no assurance or insurance. So how do you make that work? Well, they're slowly figuring it out in Russia. But, and it's something we've established in the Western world over, you know, the centuries. But this bit chain presents an entirely new way to do that for all kinds of things in totally new, totally secure ways. And maybe totally new ways to borrow and lend money. You know, it's like the bank borrows money from the Fed at 1%, and then it lends it to me on my credit card at 18%. Where's that at? What's it doing that it warrants that 17% markup? I mean, why can't I borrow directly from the Fed at 1% or maybe 2% because it would have to do the record keeping. But the point is that record keeping is now totally computerized and BitChain makes it possible to do it in totally new ways. How's this going to change everything? Think of Airbnb and Uber. I mean, things like hotels and taxi and hotel industry and taxi industry are totally being revolutionized by these new platforms. Uh, so anyway... This book is about that, and it does a really good job of explaining the basics and then uh, uh, speculating on the implications. Uh, the next book I got was Life 3.0, just finished that one, Max Tegmark, on artificial intelligence. And I'm, I have been, still am, an artificial intelligence skeptic. And sure, it does all this cool stuff. 
and I was one of those people who was wrong, who said, you know, they'll never play chess at the grandmaster level. Well, they do, and they can easily beat the um, the uh, the world chess champion, hands down. And not only that, it's not just supercomputers. The interesting thing is, it only not only did it through circuitry, which is how IBM did it with Deep Blue, and then they retired Deep Blue, but it beat Kasparov. But you can now buy software for your Macintosh that will beat the world chess champion. And your Macintosh is capable, but it's not a Deep Blue supercomputer. But it's been, so what's made <coughs> chess playing so capable on computers is not just the, uh, you know, Moore's Law that it doubles in capability every 18 months, but uh, totally new approaches to software. And the interesting thing now is that the highest level of chess is played by teams of humans and computers. A human computer can beat a computer. There's no computer that can beat a top human and a top computer. So that's the highest level of chess these days. But, um, okay, chess is still a bunch of rules. I mean, I don't want to denigrate anybody, but isn't chess highly sophisticated tic-tac-toe? Um, you know, if someone puts an X in the upper left square, uh, the machine should put an O in the central square. If someone puts an X in, etc. So um, a machine can, you know, play tic-tac-toe. Is chess simply extremely complicated tic-tac-toe? But, but does that mean it's intelligent? Does it mean it's conscious? Well, the AI people, and this book, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, is, I will try to have them on, but it's a brilliant summary of where this all stands now. And these, uh, these AI people think that it's going to leap any moment to self-awareness. Well, I don't even think they know what self-awareness is, much less being near the leap. But even if it's not self-awareness, it's doing some pretty scary stuff. So this book is about that. Um, next book is How to Read Literature Like a Professor. We're going to try to have him on. A Lively and Entertaining Guide to Reading Between the Lines. It's a really great book about what does that symbol mean? You know, what are they really saying? Terrific book. Then uh, Revolutionary Wealth, How It Will Be Created and How It Will Change Our Lives. This is by Alvin Toffler and Heidi Toffler. And nah, it's one of those books that sort of um, throws the spaghetti against the wall. You know, it's a list of everything going on in tech. It's already about, uh, I don't have the date, but maybe eight years old, which means, eh, you know, yeah, it doesn't even know about uh, smartphones, you know. Um, so, uh, but I would actually recommend The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler, uh, even though that book is, whoa, I don't know, what, 30 years old, uh, 20 or 30 years old. Uh, it's still mind-blowing reading. And, of course, you can update it in your mind as you go. 
And then one of the superheroes of our information age is Claude Shannon. And there was never a biography of him. Now there is a mind at play, how Claude Shannon invented the information age. So he did two cool things. One is 1948 at Bell Labs, he wrote a paper, um, what was it called, Mathematical Theory of Communication. And in, in it, he, he was asking himself the question, how much information can be transmitted through a channel? So if you have a twisted pair, what we call the old-fashioned copper telephone lines, how much theoretically, what's the maximum amount of information you can get through there? And the telephone company didn't know. And so they said, we better, we, you know, we'd like to find out, you know, what do we, what do we, what, you know, how do we uh, understand what we're doing here? And this book established that. And in doing that, he uh, did two things, one, among others. He said, well, what is information? And he said, information is totally unrelated to meaning. So if you have a page of absolute gibberish, just random letters, there's actually information there. And there's actually more information than there is if you have a page of Shakespeare. And he goes into why and it has to do with there's a lot of redundancy in ordinary English. If you see TH, you know it's D, even though the E's not there. Um, so that um, uh, you can remove a lot of the letters from a page of Shakespeare and still make sense of it. And uh, so, you know, what is information? How is it different from meaning? And then to explain information is that information is that which can be transmitted in bits, in ones and zeros. And so what is the maximum number of ones and zeros you can transmit, you know, per second through a channel? And doesn't matter whether the ones and zeros make sense or not, that maximum number of ones and zeros is the maximum amount of information you can transmit through a channel. So, um, very layman, no formulas, but what is information? Oh, and the other thing is uh, uh, Shannon's master thesis at MIT uh, sort of invented the computer. Uh, not the concept, but how they actually work. And that was, he realized you could do Boolean algebra if this, then, if this, then that, with relays, with switches. Uh, you know, the switch is on, the switch is off, the, you transmit electricity, you don't transmit electricity. And so that all the steps of Boolean logic, which is the logic we use in computers, can be done with switches. And then they said, oh, you know, we don't need big clumsy relays. We can do that with vacuum tubes. And then they said, gee, we don't need hot, unreliable vacuum tubes that burn out all the time and need air conditioning. Uh, we can do that with transistors. And then they said, huh, we can get a billion transistors on one piece of silicon. And all that comes from Claude Shannon's master thesis. Anyway, great biography. Um, what else do I have? Cool books. Well, let me stop at that and... Um, Oh, let me, let me, oh, one more. I'm in the middle of it right now. I got it a long time ago, but To Be a Machine, Adventures Among Cyborgs, 
utopians, hackers, and the futurists solving the modest problem of death. So, uh, highly recommended, something I'm involved with. I told you I'm director of Timeship. You'll find that at timeship.org, O-R-G. We couldn't get calm. And uh, it's a modest problem, uh, project for, well, um, immortality. All we need to do is uh, freeze people at the moment of death until the cryonics, freeze people at the moment of death until they, uh, we can safely uh, resurrect them and download them into a whatever, a chip or a new cloned body. And uh, so this book is about all the weird people, and it now turns out some of the top, uh, you know, silicon billionaires are into this. So we're in good company. But this book is a great survey of all that's going on in that field. So highly recommend it. So listen, we're coming to the end of our show. This is John Lobel. The show is Visionaries. You find us every Monday at prn.fm on the Progressive Radio Network. Go to visionaries.podbean.com for our back shows. Be sure to tune in next week and be sure to tune in. November 6th, we'll have Christopher Vogler, author of The Writer's Journey, which grew out of a famous seven-page memo that he wrote at Disney, which is now required reading for all screenwriters. So if you're an aspiring screenwriter, you probably know about it and you want to hear him. Or if you don't, uh, you'll find out what you need to know to be a screenwriter. So see you next week.